This Lord's Day we come to Mark chapter 13 in our series through the Gospel of Mark. This is the introduction to the Olivet Discourse. We will be spending, no doubt, a a few weeks in this particular chapter. It has been noted by many commentators that this is perhaps one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible by way of interpretation. And therefore, we will not be skimming over the surface, but trying to understand exactly what the Lord's words were to his disciples as well as to us before he laid down his life on Calvary. We're looking at the the first four verses, focusing our attention today upon the first four verses, Mark chapter 13. We are continually admonished in Scripture, dear ones, not to place our faith in the external ordinances which God has given unto us as aids and helps to our struggling faith, as did the Jews during the time of Christ, who looked to circumcision, who looked to the covenants of their forefathers, who looked to the law of God, who looked to the priesthood, and who looked to the temple to make them acceptable and worthy in God's sight. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 where he says, with regard to this very issue, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 3, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. If we place ourselves under that covenant of works, we are not simply indebted to keep one specific law, whether circumcision or sacrifices or the priesthood as as it was in the Old Testament. Paul says, if you place yourself under the law, O Galatians, you're indebted to keep all of the law in order to be acceptable before God. Beloved faith, no matter how small, even the size of a mustard seed, is to be placed in God alone, for He alone is able to save us. He alone is able to rescue us. He alone is able to help us. He alone is able to provide all of our needs and to answer our prayers. The Lord has graciously given us many aids to our faith. In our weakness, He has given us many helps to our faith, such as a faithful ministry, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, a sound confession of faith and catechism, and solemn covenants. And we need to rejoice in all of these aids 
and helps to our faith. But dear ones, we must never forget the words of the Apostle Paul where he said in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul and Apollos were simply aids and helps to the faith of the Corinthians, but it was God who gave the increase. Apart from the blessing of God's Spirit in granting to us faith to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe in His promises, these outward ordinances that we have mentioned here will become a mere superstitious bronze serpent to which we look for blessing as did the Israelites in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, where that which was constructed under the appointment of God by Moses became a superstitious matter, and something that, to which they offered incense in the reign of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah destroyed it because it had become a mere superstitious item of faith. And you know, dear ones, the temple in Jerusalem had become such an outward ordinance to the Jews as well. Rather than an aid to their faith or an appointed means by which they were to worship the one true living God, the Jews had come to pride themselves in the mere outward beauty and glory of the temple, as we shall see today. How susceptible we are, even as Christians, to trust in riches, to trust in the economy, to trust in our employer, to trust in doctors, to trust in the pastor, to meet our needs. We're so susceptible to this, to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ and to place it upon people or things to meet our needs. Our problem is always one of keeping the eye of faith upon Christ and seeing that whomever He does use to meet our needs is His tool, but that it is He, the living God, who blesses and gives us the increase. This Lord's Day, we shall consider how Israel and even the disciples themselves had come to view the temple as such a necessary part of the true religion that to be without the temple meant to them that the end of the world was come upon them. That's the way they interpreted it. The temple was so essential, so necessary to their faith, that they associated the destruction of the temple, the end of the temple, to be the end of the world. The main points from our text are these. First of all, the disciples boast in the temple. Mark 13.1 Secondly, the Lord predicts the end of the temple in Mark 13.2. And thirdly, the disciples question when the end shall be. Mark 13, verses 3-4. Let us consider together the first main point. The disciples boast in the temple. Look with me at Mark 13, verse 1. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones 
and what buildings are here. The Lord had given seven discourses on this very same day. This was the third day of his Passion Week. Seven discourses, and most of those, I believe, were within the temple, beginning with Mark 11.27 and continuing through to Mark 12.44. Now, as Christ departs, there is something in particular that seems to weigh very heavily upon the minds of the disciples, as suggested by the words that are uttered in Mark 13.1. One of the disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Exclamation point. The disciple literally exclaims, What kind of stones? What kind of buildings? what he says. Now, what had Christ said in one of his previous discourses that day that might draw the attention of this disciple and all of the disciples to the stones and buildings within the temple? Well, if you look with me at Matthew 23, you will find the discourse of Christ wherein he exposes the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this passage, this entire chapter, is summarized in merely three verses in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, but we have an entire chapter devoted to the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel. But as we approach the end of Matthew chapter 23, we note at verse 38, the Lord pronounces certain judgment upon Jerusalem and upon its house, that is, upon its temple. He says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The temple was to become desolate, empty and uninhabited. Just as the bronze serpent was destroyed by Hezekiah because it had served its appointed purpose and had become a superstitious object of faith, religion, and worship, so the temple was to be destroyed by the Lord through the Roman armies because it had likewise served its purpose, its appointed purpose, and had become a superstitious object of worship, faith, and religion. So now, because the disciples cannot imagine their worship apart from the glory of this earthly temple, as the Lord and his disciples leave the temple, the attention of the Lord is drawn by one of the disciples who spoke, no doubt, for all of the disciples, the attention of the Lord is drawn to the kind of stones and the kind of buildings within the temple. The King James Version uses the word manner, but literally it's the word kind. What kind of stones and buildings within the temple? The Jewish historian Josephus states that the stones in the temple were enormous stones. They were about 40 feet long, 12 feet high and 20 feet wide, these stones within the temple. 
Here was no sanctuary that was built upon temporary uh, shifting sand. The disciples could not possibly imagine at this point a building so stable and so solid becoming desolate. Like the pyramids, here was a structure that they thought would last until the end of the world. The stones within the temple were not only enormous and seemingly immovable, but the courts, the pavilions, the columns, the steps, the terraces, the curtains, were among the most beautiful and ornate things that one could see in the world at that time. Even Titus, the Roman general who destroyed Jerusalem, did not desire the temple to be destroyed because of its great beauty, according to Josephus. Tacitus, the Roman historian, speaks of the temple as one of immense wealth in his history. Thus we see here in the exclamation of the disciple of Christ, an implied desire that the temple might not be destroyed, but that it might continue as an appointed and an enduring part of the true religion. But the temple, dear ones, to the Israelite at that time, the temple was the hub around which the religion of Israel revolved. Dear ones, do you see how Israel had allowed the outward aids to their faith to become the essence in the, on the part of many, the essence of their faith, so they could not imagine their worship, their religion, or their faith apart from these divinely appointed aids and means. Whereas the disciples should have eagerly anticipated the divine alteration in the outward forms of worship, for such changes pointed to the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They yet clung to the old forms only with great difficulty were their fingers loosened from the grips around these old forms. For these old forms were what were familiar to them. These old forms, these, these outward aids, they knew them. They knew them oh so well. The disciples expressed, if I might say here, not in some kind of condemnatory manner, but simply an observation, they expressed a childish desire for everything to continue as it presently was. Remember Peter did not want Christ to speak of his death upon the cross, but rebuked the Lord Jesus for speaking of his death. And now this disciple that utters this, this particular remark in Mark 13.1 does not want Christ to speak of the desolation of the temple. They want things to remain the way that they are. A kind of childishness. Like a child who does not understand the true value of riches, the Lord was taking away, by way of analogy, a toy out of the hand of the child, but promising them the wealth, the riches of heaven. But 
again, they didn't see. Their, their faith was so small, they did not see clearly what was being taken away in comparison to what the Lord was giving. The Lord had better things, infinitely more valuable things and glorious things to give to the disciples. Things he had in store for them than this temple of stone which they wanted to continue to endure. How often, by way of application, dear ones, how often we, like those childish disciples of Christ, want everything in our lives to continue in the most comfortable, familiar way for us, don't we? We're all honest. That's what we desire. We do not like change. We do not like hardship. We do not like having to make those types of transitions. We grow weary of change, whether in moving from one location to another, whether in changing jobs, whether in putting off familiar views of unsound doctrine and putting on sound doctrine, being stretched in our faith to the extreme and to the maximum by way of trials, by way of hardships, being pushed beyond our comfort zone due to those afflictions that come our way through the ordering of a most wise, powerful, and holy God in order to conform us to Christ and His suffering that He might be glorified even through our suffering. The Lord assures us as we look at the disciples within our text today that just as the change that was to be brought into the lives of believing Israel by the destruction of the temple, just as it was difficult for the disciples at that time to even imagine and those that were living at the time and knew or witnessed the destruction of the temple, those who were Christians, no doubt it was difficult and hard for them, a trial to them. It was without a doubt, beloved, for their good. And we can see so clearly that it was for their good. But it's more difficult for us to see how all of the changes through which we pass are for our good. But dear ones, the same God is ordering the events in our life that was ordering the events that would bring about the destruction of the temple. And He orders them and ordains them for our good as well. It will be so, dear ones, as we trust Him, we will see so clearly how God ordains these things for our good. And how much the better if we see it as we're going through it rather than after we've already passed through the trial and the affliction and we look back upon it. How much better to see God working and trusting Him that He is working all things out for our good through all of these changes. The second main point in our, from our text this Lord's Day is the Lord predicts the end of the temple. Mark chapter 13, verse 2. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
Here the Lord makes even more clear his prediction concerning the destruction of the temple than he had made in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38. In graphic language, the Lord states that these seemingly immovable stones will be moved and laid waste. This was, of course, fulfilled in 70 A.D. as the Roman armies decimated Jerusalem and the temple. As I said earlier, although Titus did not intend to destroy the temple, the Lord did intend to destroy the temple. For when Titus and the Roman armies had overtaken Jerusalem proper, it was the temple and its precincts that were left standing. It was at the high point. That was the highest point within Jerusalem. It was like a fortress within Jerusalem. The temple was. It was not... It was not an easy access, an easy undertaking to, to take the zealots who had lodged themselves, hundreds of them, within the temple. Contrary to the orders of Titus, Roman soldiers threw torches into the temple to force the zealots out, thus setting fire to this immense structure and ultimately bringing it to the ground. Here is another testimony by way of this prediction, by way of this prophecy, a testimony to the person of Jesus Christ that He is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. And a clear testimony as well to the inspiration of Scripture, for it was 40 years later that this prophecy was fulfilled, just as Christ had predicted. An amazing, graphic description and prophecy as to what would occur. But you know, beloved, as we see prophecy after prophecy fulfilled in the Scripture, and we can, we can believe that, we can assert that that actually happened, thereby we are also encouraged to embrace the promises of God which we may not see yet fulfilled. If God has fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in His Word, we are encouraged to cling to Christ for the promises that He has made to us, though we do not yet see the fulfillment of those promises. If we believe that such a prophecy was fulfilled according to the Word of Christ, dear ones, so should we believe that His promises to us will likewise be fulfilled, whether the forgiveness of our sins or the promise of eternal life or the promise that all things work together for the good of them who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. Or the promise of provision for the needs that we have. Just as He fulfilled prophecy, He will fulfill all of His promises to us. Now, as we consider the destruction of the temple, there were no doubt two reasons for the desolation of the temple. Two reasons. The first being that it was a judgment against the wickedness and hypocrisy of mere outward religion that had developed around this structure. As the Lord alludes to in Matthew chapter 23. Just as the Lord had destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem under 
Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, as you'll recall in the Old Testament, for the apostasy within Israel and for the hypocrisy found within the religion of Israel, so the height of apostasy and hypocrisy was exemplified within Israel at this time by the plotting and the assenting of Israel to the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. Make no mistake, beloved, make no mistake about it, God's divine judgment was evidenced against an apostate religion in the destruction of Jerusalem and in the destruction of the temple. Having received so much light in the revelation of Christ's preaching and in the revelation of his miracles which he performed in their very sight, they rejected that light. They rejected the life offered to them and embraced their mere outward forms of religion where they were comfortable, where there was no change required. By way of application again, dear ones, let none of us think that we will escape ourselves the righteous judgment of the Lord as a church. Should we worship the outward forms of our religion and cling to them more than we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ who has given them to us as helps and aids to our faith? Let none of us or our children think that we can continue to receive the light which is offered by the preaching of the Word every Lord's Day and that we can discount, discredit, ignore, neglect that light as it comes to us without God's severe discipline and chastening falling upon us as a church or as families or as individuals. I urge you this day, dear ones, receive the light. Receive the life. Receive the refreshment, the peace, the comfort, and the contentment of the Lord Jesus Christ as He speaks to you by His Word and His Spirit. If all you feel like you can do today is throw yourself down at the, at the door of God's throne of grace, throw yourself down there. Simply put yourself in the way. If there is not within you at this point, the seeming ability to cry out to the Lord. Put yourself in the way, as those did many times who were healed, simply to put themselves in the way that Christ would touch them and have mercy upon them. Come to Him today and enjoy Him. Not only the ordinances, not only the preaching of the Word, this is all intended to drive you to Christ. If you simply stop here and say, what a fine sermon. How well articulated. How well reasoned out. If that is all that you glean from the sermon today, you have profited nothing. I have stood before you in vain, 
if your faith hasn't been directed to Jesus Christ, if you do not see Him and embrace Him and enjoy Him as He is offered to you today in the Gospel. The second reason for the desolation of the temple, the first being that it was a judgment upon Israel for their hypocrisy and their apostasy. The second reason for the desolation of the temple was because the outward administration of religion under the Old Covenant was intended by God to be temporary all along. For it was filled, that Old Covenant economy was filled with pictures, types, and shadows which pointed to Jesus Christ in His finished work of redemption for His people under the New Covenant. The temple itself, despite its glory and its beauty, was never intended to be a permanent fixture in the New Covenant. For as the gospel of Jesus Christ moved beyond the borders of Israel to encompass all nations, the Lord made abundantly clear in His Word that the true temple and abode of God was not one made of stone, but was a far more glorious temple consisting of sinners redeemed by the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the temple of God. That temple was a picture of the abode of God, the living God, who now abides within us as His church who walks in our midst. Jesus Christ walks in the midst of His, of his churches, as we see in Revelation chapter 1. He speaks unto His churches. We are one visible church under Jesus Christ. And that temple pointed to this bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one body, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning with verse 17. <clears throat> Speaking of Christ, "...and came and preached peace to you which were afar off," that is, to the Gentiles, "...and to them that were nigh," that is, to the Jews." For through him we both have access by one Father unto the uh, uh, by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. <clears throat> it was now time to move God's people away from those forms of worship and religion which were mere shadows of Christ and of the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ as evidenced by the rending of the veil in the, in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Those things 
have been rent. They have been done away with and abolished. And so the Lord intended all along to do away with the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, to do away with the sacrifices, to do away with the temple, to do away with uh, the instruments associated with the Levitical priesthood and the temple, to do away with all of those things in order to establish forms of worship that were agreeable to the covenant, the new covenant, which the Lord Jesus had established with his people. Certainly the regulative principle of worship which governs our outward forms of worship continues from the Old Testament into the New, having been established in the second commandment and continuing into the new covenant so that we can only worship the Lord by way of outward forms in the way which he has ordained and authorized within his word. And that which he has not commanded is forbidden to us. That which he has not authorized in his word is forbidden to us. We cannot use any form he has not placed his own stamp of approval upon within his word. It should be noted, dear ones, that although the outward ordinances of the ministry, the preaching of the word and the sacraments, are given for the well-being of the church, listen closely, they are not necessary to the being of the church, to the essence of the church. For the church of Israel went without the sacrament of circumcision, went without the sacrament of the Passover while it wandered in the wilderness. The church of Israel went without a, a faithful ministry during the time of Elijah. And yet there existed in Israel a faithful remnant of Christ in Israel. Namely, Elijah and 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, dear ones, where the Word and the Spirit of God are, they create a people for the Lord. There exists the church, whether they meet in a cathedral, whether they meet in a home, whether they meet in a field, or whether they meet in a cave, whether there is one, whether there is two, or whether there is twenty, thirty, forty, or five thousand, there the church exists. It does not depend upon these mere outward forms for its existence. It is beneficial, it is profitable to the well-being of the church, but the existence of the church, the essence of the church, does not depend upon those things. That was the message that our Protestant forefathers gave to Rome when they said, but you don't have ministers, you don't have all of these things that the church of Rome has. They said that's not what the church consists of. The third and final point from our text this Lord's Day is this. The disciples question when the end shall be. We consider verses 3 and 4 at this point. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? 
And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? The Lord and his disciples have now moved from the temple to the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which overlooked Jerusalem, and from which one had a spectacular view of the temple. Note the question put to Christ by Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They want to know when the destruction of Jerusalem will occur and what will be the sign of Christ's coming in glory. I'd have you see here that these disciples, again, had a very difficult time in distinguishing the destruction of Jerusalem, separating that from the coming of the Lord at the end of the world. They had a very difficult time. Their faith was yet tied up in the temple to such a degree that they could only think in terms of its destruction at the end of the world. In our parallel passage in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, the question reads a little differently than what we find in Mark chapter 13. I think it bears out this point that, that I was just making much more clearly. In Matthew 24, 3, it says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And of the end of the world. <clears throat> this particular word that's used here for the end of the world the consummation, it may be translated in certain versions, uh, English versions, the consummation of the age. It's used in, uh, five times by Matthew, and each and every time it's used with regard to the end of the world, to the consummation of the age, when Christ returns uh, a second time. Oh, the difficulty... Not only the difficulty that the disciples had as it related to their faith being tied up in mere outward forms, but the difficulty we have as well, dear ones, in making such changes even when the Lord has revealed such to be the case to us. As we alluded to earlier, However, in closing, there's one change. There's one change which the Lord has revealed to us that is going to occur. There's one transition. There's one alteration in the way things are that the Lord is to bring about in all of our lives without exception. And that is the change that will occur at our death as we move from this life to the next. No one can avoid that particular appointment. That change is to occur to all of us. How we should even now, beloved, prepare ourselves for that change by praying for the grace to die to the honor and glory of Christ, however God should choose 
for us to leave this world, that we begin even now to pray and make it a part of our daily prayer. God, give to me the grace that I would die in such a way that it would bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ and that it would promote and advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I submit to you, dear ones, we see our childishness in such matters, for we want to cling to that with which we are familiar, namely the things of this life, this earth, our family, our friends, our possessions. To think of leaving those that we know and love here upon the earth many times is more than we can bear. But it shows at at such times the childishness of our faith. Much like the disciples, what God was giving to them in exchange for the temple was far more glorious. They couldn't see it then. So we, in this particular point in our lives, have a hard time seeing the glories and understanding the glory and the treasures and the riches that are laid up for us in heaven. And being able to see our Savior face to face and being able to worship Him and adore Him without interruptions. Dear ones, such truths show us so clearly where our focus ought to be in this life. Our focus, dear ones, when it comes to heaven, when it comes to death, when it comes to these types of issues, It teaches us to focus more and more in our lives upon growing in our faith, in our understanding and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as we grow in Christ, this perishable earth will fade before our eyes. This perishable earth will lose, to a large extent, its attraction as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Death will increasingly lose its its sting. For we will eagerly anticipate the change from mortality unto immortality, from sorrow to everlasting joy, from weakness to strength, from temptation to exaltation, from sin to righteousness, from death to life. Remember that the Lord exhorts us to view ourselves as pilgrims. This is not our home. As the the song goes, we're just a passing through. We're just passing through, dear ones. There's our home. Our citizenship is is in heaven. We are aliens and foreigners. Therefore, we ought not to consider the fact that we that we are afflicted, that we are persecuted, because we're in a foreign land. We are the children of God. Therefore, when we endure persecution, it ought not to seem so strange to us, because because the world, John says, doesn't know us. It doesn't appreciate and love our Savior and the cause for which we stand. We've got two different capitals here. 
two different countries. And I would have you to to not forget, in light of all these things, Aaron, that all the trials of this world are intended to make the everlasting glories of the new Jerusalem and the temple in heaven more real to us. Our trials are intended to make us love and appreciate that which is set before us even more. Just as the disciples needed to see that the change from the old temple worship to the new temple worship was a glorious change for their well-being, so we likewise need to see the Lord just as actively involved for our well-being in the changes that occur within our life. All of the changes that occur, that He is working for our well-being, for our good, for His glory, and for His honor. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.